Chapter 16 of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Bryan Stewart. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borman. John Williams Text. 1. The boys who were born in the closing years of the 18th century were swept off their feet by the audacious exploits of Captain Cook. That intrepid navigator had fired their fancies with the vision of a new world. His adventurous voyages, his sensational discoveries, and his tragic death were the talk of the time. In every playground in England, schoolboys were dreaming feverish daydreams of coral reefs and cannibal islands away in southern seas. William Carey was one of those boys. John Williams was another. If I had the means, said Carey, I would go to the South Seas and commence a mission at Otaheite. He changed his mind, however, and went to India, leaving to John Williams that vast expanse of sea and land that Captain Cook had so recently explored. John Williams was just the man for the moment. He seemed to have been built on purpose. Sailing in the wake of our greatest navigator, he caught so perfectly the spirit of his illustrious predecessor that he was able to continue and complete his work. He discovered Rarotonga, an island that had eluded the sharp eyes and tireless researches of Captain Cook and his companions. In boats that he himself had built, he sailed from island until island at the gateways of the day. As soon as he had established a footing on one group, he pushed on to another. When the authorities in England questioned his wisdom, in roving like a raking round the Pacific, he told them frankly that no other program would appease his conscience. A missionary, he wrote, was never designed by Jesus Christ to gather a congregation of a hundred or two natives and sit down at his ease, as contented as if every sinner were converted, while thousands around him, and but a few miles off, are eating each other's flesh and drinking each other's blood, living and dying without the gospel. For my part, I cannot content myself within the narrow limits of a single reef. If, he said, the committee discountenanced his shipbuilding and denied him further facilities for navigation, he would a thousand times rather be stationed on a continent. For there, if you cannot ride, you can walk. But to these scattered islands, only a ship can carry you. He was always looking for new worlds to conquer, and he conquered them. Take Rarotonga, for example. He discovered it in 1823, and commenced evangelistic activities at once. He planted several mission stations there, committing them to the care of his native workers. Therein, his son thinks, lies the genius of his statesmanship. He knew how to make missionaries of his converts. Five years later, he had two of his fellow countrymen and residents on the island, superintending all the operations there. Six years later still, he is able to report that Rarotonga has been completely evangelized. Its idols have all been destroyed by their former worshippers. Three spacious and substantial churches have been erected. The people have the word of God in their own language, and, he adds, I am not aware that there is a house in the island where family worship is not observed every morning and every evening. He is delighted at the way in which civilization and commerce have followed the train of Christianity. And, on almost the last day of his life, he completed arrangements for the establishment on the island of a college, in which suitable young men were to be thoroughly educated and taught the useful arts 
with a view to becoming the leaders and instructors of their own people. He was, as Dr. Campbell finally said, a man who has achieved for himself a deathless fame, and one concerning whom generations to come will feel a laudable and reverent curiosity. 2. It was on the first Sunday of the new year that Mr. Spurgeon was suddenly arrested by the power of the gospel. It was on the first Sunday of the new year that, no less startlingly, John Williams was enlisted in the Saviour's service. In each case, it was a text that did it. Mr. Spurgeon liked to tell the story of John Williams' conversion because, in some respects, it so closely resembled his own. It was on a sharp, frosty evening, the evening of Sunday, January the 3rd, 1819. Soon after dusk, a cold sleet had fallen, but the weather had cleared, and throngs of people hurrying this way and that were responding to the melodious invitation of the bells. On a way to church, Mrs. Tonkin, in passing along City Road, was struck by the appearance of a tall young fellow who seemed to be lounging aimlessly at the street corner. He was a lad of about eighteen, stalwart and sinewy, already giving promise of vast physical energy. As the lamplight fell upon his fine open countenance, she turned and fastened upon him a second and more penetrating glance. Something about him seemed familiar. Where had she seen that face before? To be sure, he was one of her husband's apprentices. She remembered noticing him in the workshop. She paused and then went back to him. He explained that he had made an appointment with some friends to meet at this corner and to spend the evening at a tavern in Highbury. His companions, however, had failed to put in an appearance, and he was feeling vexed and disappointed. My course of life at this period, he wrote afterwards, was very wicked, though not fragrantly immoral. I was regardless of the Sabbath, a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. I often scoffed at the name of Christ in his religion, and I totally neglected those things which alone can afford solid consolation. Mrs. Tonkin urged him to accompany her to Moresfield Tabernacle. With a little persuasion, he consented. Twenty-four years afterwards, on the occasion of his visit to England, he stood in the pulpit of that very building and told a crowded congregation of that youthful yet momentous experience of his. I have in my view at the present moment, he said, the door by which I entered. I have all the circumstances of that important era in my history vividly impressed upon my mind, and I have in my eye at this instant the particular spot on which I took my seat. I have also a distinct impression of the powerful sermon that was that evening preached by the excellent Mr. East. That good man took for his text that night one of the most impressive questions of inspired writ. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? God was pleased in his own gracious providence to influence my mind so powerfully that I forsook all my worldly companions and became a teacher in the Sabbath school connected with this place. Many a Sabbath afterwards did I sit upon the form now in my sight with my class and impart the knowledge to them which God in his gracious goodness had given to me. It was thus that the supreme issues of human life, the world and the soul, his world and his soul, were suddenly presented for his contemplation. The world, his world, the soul, his soul, to gain the world, to lose his soul. 
What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? John Williams resolved that Sunday night that his immortal soul should on no account be lost, and he resolved to win a larger world than the paltry world on which, up to that moment, his heart had been set. 3. I do not know, I should like to know, how Mr. East dealt that evening with this old, old question. It must have been in some new and striking way. Perhaps he took it to pieces. It sometimes happens that you get so used to a thing as a whole that you only realise the wonder of its composition when its component parts are all spread out before you. A gun, a clock, a microscope looks commonplace. But let a skilful mechanic take it to pieces before your eyes, and you stand astonished at its delicate settings and beautiful adjustments. It may be that Mr. East did something of the kind that night. He may have talked for a while on the wisdom of weighing the issues of life and of computing its profit, or loss. He may have discussed the unutterable value of the individual soul. He may have commented eloquently on the conquest of the world. I have sometimes fancied that a sermon could be preached on that fragment alone. To say nothing of the loss of the soul, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? It all depends. A man might gain an inconsiderable fraction of the world and be immensely profited, or, on the other hand, he might gain the whole world without being profited at all. As I say, it all depends. And it depends not upon the world, but upon himself. Everybody knows the eastern story of the man who, becoming extremely rich, built for himself a magnificent palace. He lived in it with perfect satisfaction, until somebody told him that no palace was complete unless a rock's egg hung suspended from its roof. The unhappy man thereupon set out to find a rock's egg, and, always unsuccessful in his search, died in his mortification and discontent. Marshal Salt and the Duke of Wellington were one day inspecting Canova's statue of Napoleon, a statue which represents the emperor as the conqueror of the world. The globe is in his hand. Turning to the Duke, Salt remarked that it is very odd that a sculptor, who understood so perfectly the science of proportion, should have made the globe so extremely small. Ah, replied the Duke, but England was not in it. It was the story of the rock's egg over again. Our capacity for satisfaction depends not on the splendour of our conquests, but on ourselves. A man may win the whole world, and so far from being profited, may simply weep, there are no more worlds to conquer. 4. If he gain the whole world, if he lose his own soul, the whole world, his own soul, neither is a negligible quantity. The man who lives for the whole world and neglects his own soul is a materialist. The man who lives for his own soul and neglects the whole world is a monk, and neither the materialist nor the monk represents the ideal of perfect manhood. To gain the whole world. A recent work of fiction tells us that, on the Cornish Road, near to the little village of Ez, where the splash of the Mediterranean waves is the only sound heard, you may see an old tombstone with this strange inscription. Here lies the soul of Count Louis Esterfield. Many travellers have passed by long years and read it, and wondered, repeating the words with puzzled minds. Some laughed lightly, and others looked grave, until at last 
came a man who, reading the epitaph, sat down beside the stone to ponder it. After a while he began to dig, and, working patiently for some time, he came upon a box made of metal and filled with jewels and gold. Among them lay a paper on which was written, You are my heir, to you I bequeath this wealth, for you alone have understood me. In this box is my soul. An identically similar story occurs in the introduction to Gilblas. In each case, there is the sad, despairing cry of a man who has gained his whole world and lost his own soul. It is the misery of the materialist. And the misery of the monk is scarcely less pitiful. In his concern for his own soul, he turns back upon the whole world. Luther did. I was indeed a pious monk, he writes to Duke George of Saxony, and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of this all the friars who have known me can testify. If it had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of my vigils, prayers, readings, and other cloistral labours. Happily, Luther remembers the world, the whole world, the world that God so loved, the world for which Christ died. And remembering the whole world, he set out from his convent cell to win it, and he won it in a way that made his soul more than ever his own. 5. So did John Williams. For that New Year's Sunday evening at Mallsfield Tabernacle, he suddenly acquired a new view of the value of his own soul, and a new view of the value of the whole world. The value of his soul impressed him immediately. The value of the world impressed him no less profoundly. The whole world, God so loved the world, Go ye into all the world. The visions that had fired his fancy as he poured over the stirring pages of Captain Cook rushed back upon his mind. If I had the means, said William Carey, as he read Cook's voyages, if I had the means, I would go to the South Seas and commence a mission at Otaheite. Carey went to India, but Williams went to Otaheite. And, stranded there, he felt his utter hopelessness. The world, even Cook's world, seemed wonderfully wide. If he wrote to a friend, if only I had a ship, I would visit every island in the Pacific and leave teachers on each one to direct the feet of the heathen to happiness in heaven. At last he could endure his world hunger no longer. Totally ignorant of the arts of shipbuilding, and totally destitute of the necessary tools, he actually built a ship, the messenger of peace, a little vessel of seventy tons burthen. It was, as somebody said, the evidence no less of his fervid piety than of his matchless skill. The committee in England censored him for doing it, but he could not help it. The first sermon I ever preached in the native language, he says, was from the text, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I love that doctrine and I am resolved never to preach a sermon in any language, unless salvation through the blood of Christ is its sum and substance. It is a truth worth carrying to the whole world. The whole world. God so loved the world. Go ye into all the world. His own soul, the whole world. He won them both. In November 1839, he sailed for Eremunga, 
an island that he had never visited before. The approaching week, he wrote in his diary, is to me the most important of my life. It was. The last entry in that journal reads, The results of this day will be... The sentence was never finished. For that day, the native Sibiramunga slew him with their clubs. He was only forty-three. But he had held true to the great decision that he made at Moorsfield Tabernacle as a boy. His soul was all his own, and he had bravely done his part towards the winning of the whole wide world. End of chapter 16